Could we just give a round of applause for all of those people who serve here every weekend? We couldn't even open the doors without them. They are the real heroes of hope. We're in the second week of our Unleashed series, and as I said last weekend, my goal in this series is to get us to start thinking outside the little box of our own little world so that we can begin to reach our full kingdom potential. The reason this series is to to get us to explore, to dream, to maybe think a little bigger, is to get us to ask, God, what could you do in my life and through my life if I could just get my priorities and values to line up with your priorities and values? God, what could you do through me if I could just get my act together? Who could you use me to impact? Who could you use me to reach? God, how could you use me in this process of reaching the triangle and changing the world? And I'm just telling you, as we go through this series, I am praying that God will blow the doors off of our thinking about what he can do in us and what he can do through us if we will get to the point we just make our lives available to him. Last week, we began by talking about living obediently. And we talked about the fact this is so important because really it's the foundation for everything we do in the Christian life. Once we live obediently, everything else begins to fall into place. But when we live obediently in a dark world, see, it positions us to be a bright light in a dark world. And eventually... People have to ask us the why question. Why do you live the way you live? And just like with Daniel, we get to say it's because I serve a living God. And it opens up that opportunity for us to have an influence in their lives. Now this weekend, we're talking about the importance of serving selflessly and how God can use that. And let me just say, when I talk about serving selflessly, I'm talking about this idea of putting the needs of other people above your own needs. And if you do that, I'll just tell you right now, it's gonna cost you something. As we saw in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will be my witnesses. The the word translated witnesses is also translated martyrs in the New Testament, which means if we're gonna be involved in building God's kingdom, it's going to cost us something. And if we decide to put other people's needs ahead of our own needs, it's gonna cost us something. We just need to know that going in. And when it comes to serving, let's just say Jesus was very, very clear on this issue. Lots of clarity. Uh, uh, coming in from Jesus about serving. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 26, this is what Jesus says. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And I think this was born out of a conversation that the disciples were having because now they've bought into the fact that Jesus is going to build a kingdom. Unfortunately, they had bought into the fact that Jesus was going to build a kingdom on this earth. He was going to overthrow Rome. Uh, The Jews had been living under the boot of Rome. And so they saw Jesus as the great deliverer. He was the king. He was going to set up a new kingdom. They were going to be in his cabinet. You know, they were going to be great. They were going to be people of influence. And so often the disciples would sit around and they would begin to pretend like, what's going to happen when Jesus sets up this kingdom? What important role are we going to play? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the secretary of defense? Who's going to be the secretary of education you know who's going to sit on his right hand who's going to sit on his left hand and Jesus he's heard this enough and so finally he says this hey guys remember first Samuel 16 7 man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the things of the heart so Jesus looks at he says guys enough with the conversation about great hey if you want to be great in my kingdom serve be a servant any questions right They still didn't get it. There's another opportunity, John chapter 13. It's the last night that Jesus was on earth. Of course, the disciples didn't know that. And he had gathered in the upper room, and he's having that Passover meal with them. And while he's having the meal, Jesus realizes that he's surrounded by 24 dirty, stinky feet. And the reason was, if you lived in first century Jerusalem, uh, the streets were, were dirt. 
uh, when it rained, they were muddy. You shared the streets with animals, right? You wore sandals all the time. And so if you had a dinner party and you were hosting it, you made sure you had a servant who met everyone at the door and that servant would remove their sandals, wash their feet, and then they would come on into the house for the party. If you were just getting together with a bunch of friends and there was no servant, traditionally the first person arrived, took on the role of a servant and washed everybody else's feet, not these guys. They're more concerned about who's going to be great in the kingdom, who's going to sit on the right, who's going to sit on the left. So Jesus, he, he's sitting at this dinner, and he realizes he's surrounded by all of these dirty feet, and he sees a teaching moment. And so it says that he got up, and he removed his outer robe. He took a basin and a towel. He got down on his knees, and he washed the feet of all the disciples, every one of them. And then when he was finished, he put back on his garment, and he sat at the table. And this is what it says in John 13, verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And what he was saying there, now that you've seen that I have a heart of a servant, I want you to have the heart of a servant. And then he goes on to say this, I've set, an example, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's very clear. It's clarity. I don't need to spend a lot of time trying to convince you this weekend that you need to serve others. Jesus was very, very clear. He says, I, I even gave you an example to follow. In fact, he even includes a promise in verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So he gave them an example. He gave them some instructions. He even gave them a perk. You're going to be blessed if you serve other people. Very, very clear. No, uh, no confusion, no fog whatsoever. But it's amazing how as Christians, we can take something that is so clear, so simple, so commanded by Jesus, and we can, confog, we can just kind of fog it all up. We can just sit around and talk about it until all of a sudden we realize, I don't know that that really is what he meant, or I'm not sure that really pertains to me. And this is interesting, we do this in every area of life. I mean, if you're a parent and you've ever had a kid get their driver's license, remember those days? Or some of you have something to look forward to, I promise you. And they get their license on Friday, and Saturday they come in and say, by the way, Dad, I'm going to need the car tonight. I'm hanging out with my friends, not sure when I'll be home, you know. And you're like, yeah, that's just not going to happen. So we're going to have a conversation, and it's so clear in your mind how it's going to go, right? It is so black and white. And 15 minutes later, the conversation is over, and your teen is walking out the door with the keys to your car saying, leave the light on. I'm not sure when I'll get home. And you look at your spouse and say, what just happened? Did we just lose? It was so clear what happened, right? Because we got into the discussion, the debate, and it got fogged up, right? Or, you know, you ever driving down the road and your kid says, hey, dad, what's the speed limit? 55. Why are you driving 75? Well, see, son, you got to understand. You got to understand. Sometimes it's actually safer to go faster. You get with the flow of the traffic, you know, da, 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 and we can just take something that's so simple and we can fog it up, you know. All of a sudden, it's not all that clear. Or you're dating someone and you know there's this principle in the Bible that sex, God created sex, beautiful idea. Can you imagine God sitting in heaven one day saying, I have got the greatest idea, right? He created sex, but he says it's only for a man and a woman in the context of a marriage relationship. That's what sex is for. That's why I created it. And maybe as a couple, you've stayed pure, but now, man, you're engaged and you've set the date and you're thinking, God, I mean, we're practically married. God may even see us in marriage. In fact, you're sitting around in the car thinking, hey, remember that one time Mike was talking about Mary and Joseph and they were engaged? And if they broke the engagement, they literally had to be a decree of divorce. God takes engagement pretty seriously. Maybe he, it's okay for us to have sex. The next thing you know, you're in the back seat with everything fogged up and steamed up. But you can take something that's so clear, so black and white, you can talk yourself into anything. You can talk yourself out of anything. But every once in a while in our culture, 
we get a role model. Every once in a while, we get to sit back and watch as someone gets clarity on an issue and they take a stand. For example, during the civil rights movement, there was a clear voice that came on the scene. The voice was that of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he stood up and this is basically what he said. He didn't mince words. He said, it is wrong to treat a person a certain way based on the color of their skin. It is just wrong. And if you were alive during those days as I were, there were all kinds of conversations, all kinds of discussions, all kinds of debates in society, but it was a very clear message. It was a very compelling message. And eventually our nation rallied around the message and incredible change has taken place in our country when it comes to equal rights, right? Not enough, but we're moving in the right direction. But if you are around or if you study the civil rights movement, it's amazing how many smart people, how many educated people, how many Christian church people supported racism. And they sat around and they discussed it. And they sat around and they debated it. But it finally took someone with clarity, someone with courage, who was willing to take a stand, draw the line in the sand, address the issue, so that change could finally be brought about in our nation. We saw this under President Bush after 9-11. I'll never forget as he faced the camera and he talked to the nation, he said this, there are good guys and there are bad guys and the good guys must defeat the bad guys. I mean, that seems so clear to me. But do you remember watching all the talking heads on the news channels? Do you remember the pushback, the debate? They were saying, well, now the president is categorizing, the president is moralizing, the president's labeling people. He's saying that some people are good people, some people are bad people. Maybe they're not good and bad. Maybe they're just misunderstood. You know, this is going on, right? But because of President Bush and his clarity, in the midst of a discussion that didn't want anybody to be labeled good or bad, there was clarity, and it galvanized our nation at least for a period of time. Let me just say this. In the same way, I'm telling you, there is a desperate need in our culture for men and women who are willing to take a stand and who are willing to say what needs to be said and who are willing to act on what they know is right. Now, this is interesting. Jesus was that kind of person. And to be honest with you, that's why it's so much fun to read the Gospels. Because Jesus didn't mince words. He didn't worry about political correctness. Jesus just said what needed to be said, and it just bothered people. For example, if you lived during the days of Jesus and you were a religious person, but you weren't a generous person, you didn't want to be around Jesus. Jesus said more about money than any other topic, and when Jesus talked about money, he just made everybody cringe. If you were a religious person, but you wanted to manipulate the law of God, in other words, you kind of wanted to keep God in your back pocket and at the same time live any way that you wanted to live, I'm telling you, Jesus would just say the most irritating things. But what's interesting is the more irritating he was, the, huge, the, 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 the larger the crowd the following became. And it was because there was, a, there was a need in that culture for that kind of clarity. I want you to see what I'm talking about. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we come across this incredible discussion that Jesus had about this very subject of clarity. By the way, it's kind of funny, this little smoky thing every once in a while. Last night during the video, it was going off like that a little bit, and somebody said, we thought you were smoking a cigar during the bumper video. I thought, one day, my last week, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be crazy. Okay, but anyway, Luke chapter 10, Jesus addresses this subject of clarity, and he tells one of the most famous parables in the Bible. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you know this parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. But what's interesting is the background, it's the setup of this parable that makes it so interesting, that makes it so compelling. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, let's look at the setup for the parable. On one occasion, 
An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. By the way, when Jesus realized, when he knew that people were trying to test him, in other words, when Jesus realized, they're not really here to listen to me, to learn from me, they just want to test me, he never answered their question directly. In fact, he basically told them what they already essentially knew. Because he knew they weren't there to learn, he knew they're here to test me. So sometimes as you're reading the New Testament, that explains why Jesus, his answers, they seem so confusing. But you have to remember, he always answered the question based on the motivation of the person who was asking the question. So this teacher of the law shows up, and he wants to test Jesus about Jesus' understanding of the law. But understand, his real motivation is to discredit Jesus, to embarrass Jesus in front of the crowd, in front of his following. So it says in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now understand, this man asking the question, he assumed he had eternal life. The crowd assumed he had eternal life. Everybody who knew this man assumed that he had eternal life. After all, he was a teacher. He was an expert in the law, which meant he was an expert when it came to the Old Testament. But again, he's not really asking for information. He's testing Jesus to see what Jesus will say. And his hope is to discredit Jesus because after all, this guy's an expert in the law. Jesus is just a lowly, uninformed, uneducated carpenter, right? So Jesus, in return, asked him a question in verse 26. What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, why don't you tell me what you think you have to do? To have eternal life. So Jesus turns it back on him, verse 27. He answered, and basically he quotes what we now know as Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds in verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And it's as if Jesus just ignores this guy, turns, walks away. It's like, bam, Seacrest out, you know, and he just, he just ignores this guy. Done with you type thing. Now, this guy's hanging there with his face hanging out, and he's feeling a little stupid because he realizes, what did I just do? He painted himself into a corner. I mean, he has just said publicly in front of this crowd, in front of all of these witnesses, that the way you have eternal life is you love God, but you got to also love your neighbor as yourself. And he's thinking, what did I just do? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a little open-ended. That's a little vague. We should probably talk about it. We should probably discuss it. So he turns on his personal fog machine because it can't be that clear. It can't be that simple. It can't be that obvious. It can't be that black and white. So you get to verse 29. Notice it says, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? Ooh, let's talk about that. Let's discuss that. Now the word neighbor in the Hebrew meant one who is close. So when it says love your neighbor in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It means one who is close. In other words, you love one who is close as you love yourself. The Jews interpreted this to say other Jews. In other words, you love other Jews as you love yourself. The Pharisees narrowed it down to those who were righteous and accepted by God. So you love those who are righteous and accepted by God as you love yourself. And then there was another group that interpreted neighbor to mean a neighbor is whoever I decide my neighbor is. If I don't like you, you're, my, you're not my neighbor, so I don't have to love you, right? So everybody running around society is pretty much applying this verse any way they wanted. There's all kind of loopholes why you don't have to love your neighbor. So this guy says, Jesus, let's be honest. You can't love everybody. It's too vague. It's too open-ended. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's define and redefine what a neighbor is. And so he says to Jesus, well, this is interesting. 
Who is my neighbor? It's a fair question. But what I want you to be sensitive to is this. It's that kind of question that draws us into a discussion. But at the end of the day, we never really land the plane. And because we never land the plane, right, there's no clarity. And therefore, since there's no clarity, there's no reason to do anything. Let's just keep having the discussion. For example, the Bible teaches that as Christians, we're to be generous givers. Jesus talked about this all the time, right? So if you go back to the Old Testament, God instituted tithing because he knew there was no real clear answer as to what is generous. And and God's like, well, let's just keep it really simple. Let's just start with 10%. That's a great place to start. And I think Jesus said 10% because he knew we weren't great at math. So whatever you have, just take off a zero, and that's what what you're supposed to give. Back to the temple, it was known as storehouse tithing. But see, this is what's interesting. See, we we get to the New Testament, and, you know, just because, you know, it said murder in the Old Testament and don't commit adultery, we don't stop doing those things in the New Testament because we're under grace, but because it doesn't talk about tithing in the New Testament, and I'll tell you why, Jesus just assumed everybody did it because that's that's what the law taught. Since there's no mention of tithing, we're like, whoa, it's not in the New Testament, right? Maybe we don't need to tithe, but this is just what you got to understand. Jesus basically took the law of the Old Testament, and when Jesus came on the scene under grace, by the way, he raised the bar. He raised the level. For example, remember this? Jesus would say, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say, thou shalt not even hate. What did he do? He raised the bar. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says, I say, don't even lust. What do you think Jesus would say about giving? You don't want to know. So how do you be a generous giver? Very simple. You start at 10%. That's the baseline. And you go from there. And once you go from there, that's when you become a generous giver. But instead of accepting that with clarity, and can we just, sure, let's just be honest. We're among friends. It's not a theological issue. It's a selfish issue. It's, we're more interested in ourselves than we are the kingdom of God. So let's just be honest there. So we just want to discuss it. Let's just fog it up a little bit, Mike. Mike, do I really have to tithe? Isn't that under the law, but now we're under grace? Can we just discuss that a little bit? Or if I tithe, do I have to give 10%? Is that off my gross or my net? Let's just talk about that because it's not clear to me. And until I get that resolved... Or do I have to give it to the church? Well, I can just tell you, when God set it up, it came to the church, okay? What you want to do with Young Life, Crusade, missions around the world, that would be on top of your 10%, right? Or do I have to be, do I have to tithe? I'm a single parent. There's no way that God could hold me to the same standard that he holds everybody else to. Can we just discuss it? Can we just talk about it? And see, since there's no clarity There's no urgency, and where there's no urgency, understand, there's no action. I don't have to do anything because it's just not clear. I mean, let's be honest, people. We're smart enough. We can talk ourselves into anything, and we can talk ourselves out of anything. And discussion isn't the problem. That's not the danger. The danger isn't looking at all sides of an argument. But this is what I want you to hear. Be very careful about fogging up areas where there's clarity in God's word. Be careful because where there's no clarity, there's no urgency. And where there's no urgency, there's no action. So this guy says, well, I don't really want to love my neighbor as myself. Let's fog it up a little bit. Jesus actually, who is my neighbor? 
And then Jesus responds by telling this fascinating story beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the disciples are sitting there going like, oh, here we go again, right? Verse, verse 30, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him for dead. So Jesus is making up this story. He's telling this parable to illustrate a point. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And Jesus doesn't tell us why the man didn't stop. He just tells us that he kept on going. But this is what we can probably can assume. By the time the priest saw this wounded man, and by the time he passed this wounded man, somehow he had convinced himself, I really shouldn't stop. I really shouldn't get involved. We don't know why. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was too busy. Maybe he thought the guy was already dead. We don't know why, but whatever the reason, he was able to convince himself that he shouldn't stop and help this person who obviously needed help. Verse 32, so to a Levite. Who's a Levite? Levite was also a religious professional, but there are a couple of notches below a priest. This Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And again, we don't know why. Maybe he's running late for an appointment. Maybe there's a rest stop right up the road and he's really got to go to the restroom. You know, maybe, maybe it's a liability issue. Like, what if I help this guy and it doesn't go well and he turns around and sues me? We don't know why. He just decides he's going to walk past this wounded, dying man. But a Samaritan. And I told you last week, Samaritans were Jews who had married people who weren't Jews. And they were considered unclean. They were considered half, you know, inbred and half-breeds. And the Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. In fact, so much so that if a Jew needed to go from southern Palestine to northern Palestine, they would go miles out of the way to go all the way around Samaria so they wouldn't have to walk through Samaria and come in contact with any Samaritans. The Jews hated Samaritans. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing as he's talking to, I'm sure, mostly Jewish audience. He says, but there was a Samaritan. You could probably hear, oh, great, a Samaritan, right? There was a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. In other words, this is so important. He saw what needed to be done, and he felt appropriately. You see, when you, when you come across somebody who's wounded and dying, what is appropriate response? The appropriate response is pity. Somehow this guy, as he walked past this man, he was able to see the situation for what it was, and he felt appropriately. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. A denarii was a day's wage, so he paid two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And the disciples are sitting there thinking, great story, Jesus, may be in your top three, but who is my neighbor, right? But instead of answering, Jesus turns to the guy who originally brought up this discussion, who originally asked the question, this expert in the law, and he said in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. In other words, Jesus is, hey, buddy, you may be an expert in the law, but you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, how do I act neighborly? Big difference. Not who is my neighbor, how do I act neighborly. So Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. And let's be honest, you just want to draw me into a conversation that's going to fog everything up. 
And at the end of the day, you're not going to feel compelled to do anything for anybody. You're not going to be inconvenienced. You're not going to have to spend any of your time. You're not going to have to spend any of your money. It's not going to affect your lifestyle. You just want to go on and do whatever it is that you want to do. And inside, you're going to convince yourself that you are still a good, godly person. And it's because you have fogged up, mucked up what is so clear and what is so obvious. Who do you think was a neighbor to this man? Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one. See, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. The one, the one who had mercy on him. In other words, the one who saw what needed to be done and did it without talking himself out of doing it. I guess that's the one that acted neighborly. Understand, that's the one that fulfilled God's commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't sit around and discuss it. He didn't sit around and debate who is my neighbor. He just acted on what he knew needed to be done. In verse 37, Jesus told him, yeah, you got it. Go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. You don't need to qualify it. You don't need to discuss it. You don't even need to pray about it. Here's the principle. When you see a need, meet it. When you know the right thing to do, do it. At the end of the day, I'm telling you, that's what pleases God. I fell into this fog thing uh, with my oldest son when he was a student at NC State, and I'll always remember this story. He, was, uh, he came home one day, and he said, Hey, Dad, coolest thing happened at State today. I, there's, a, there's a homeless guy that's always hanging out around the campus and he says, so I got out of class, and I had an hour or so to spare, so I just sat down and had a conversation with him about Jesus and all. And, and when I left, I gave him $40. That's all I had on me. And I gave him my Bible. And I also, Dad, I also put your phone number in the Bible, so if he had any questions or ever needed anything, he could feel free to call you. <laughs> well, that's awesome, son, you know. And the next day, guess what? His name was John. He said, hey, I just want to tell you what a great son you have and how he sat down and just spent time with me. And, and he just talked to me. He just talked to me like I was a normal person. He said, you got a great son. I said, well, that is awesome. Two days later, I get a phone call. And it says, you have a collect call. And there was a space where you could put your name. You have a collect call from John at the Wake County Jail. Hmm. So I took it. Hey, Pastor Lee, this is John. I'm in jail. You know, I, there was something I was supposed to show up in court for, and I didn't show up in court. I was wondering if you could get me out of jail. I said, tell you what, John, call me back in about an hour. Let me call the jail. So I called the jail, and I talked to the sheriff who was running the jail. I said, oh, yeah, John, he's, you know, he had something. It's not a big deal. It was an infraction, but he didn't show up in court, and so we had to pick him up. And so if we let him out again, he probably won't show up again. And Why don't you just leave him in here? Because it was damp. It was winter. It was rainy. He said, listen, it's warm in here. He's going to get three meals a day. He'll be out in just a few days. Just leave him in here. Let it run its course. So I, John called me back, and, you know, like, well, if you do the crime, you got to pay, you know, you got to serve the time, you know. And uh, just do it, John. Get it over with. You won't have to worry about it anymore won't have it hanging over your head next day I get a phone call you have a collect call from but where you where you put your name it was you have a collect call from please get me out of jail at the Wake County Jail <laughs> and about every half hour you have a collect call please Mr. Pastor Lee get me out of jail I, you know just so finally I took his call you know we talked and then Aaron came home, and I lit him up. <laughs> Son, grow up. 
Why are you so naive? You got to be wiser. I mean, here we go. You know, you got to have better judgment. You got to develop some street smarts. Do you know there are professional beggars out there who make more money than I do? And I'm just going on and on and on and on about you got to be careful when you get. Don't you know they're just going to drink with it or buy drugs? Don't you know? And I'm just fogging it all up. And Aaron listened to the whole conversation. And he said, Dad, but doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to give to those who ask? And I wanted to say, yeah, but would you, I'm going to, let me try to explain this again, because evidently I wasn't clear. It's just not that simple, right? And I went on and on and on, but the, I, I had to agree with him. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. And he responded, well, I guess I did the right thing. And I said, yeah, I guess you did. Again, give us enough time, we can talk ourselves any, into anything, and we can talk ourselves out of anything. But Jesus says to us through this parable, at the end of the day, talk all you want to. Who met the man's need? Samaritan. Yeah. And Jesus would say, all right. Then here's the big application. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Let me say this again because I know it's pretty complicated and you may have missed it. Go and do Likewise, and I know people say I'm not a deep enough teacher, but this is deep, so let me just say it one more time. Go and do likewise. When you see a need, meet it. When something needs to be done, do it. Do you know why? Because that's what culture changers do. They maintain their sense of clarity. They never lose the urgency to act on what they see and what they know is right. As I said earlier, John 13, 14, Jesus made it very, very clear when he washed the disciples' feet. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, now that you've seen that I have the heart of a servant, that's what I'm expecting of you. It's so clear. But unfortunately, when it comes to serving, many of you have lost your clarity. You know the right thing to do. You know it. In theory, it's so clear, you just kind of fogged it all up. You're like, you know what, Mike? I've served for years. Let somebody else serve for a while. Hey, I give. How about all those people who aren't giving? Let them serve. Hey, aren't I serving? These are kind of things I hear. Aren't I serving when I pray for a person at work? No, that's called praying. See, I can see where you could get it confused because they both end in I-N-G, but one is, one is serving and one is praying. I had a guy one time who had the audacity to say, aren't I serving when I coach my son's soccer team? I'm like, I, I just want to be in heaven to see you slip that one past Jesus and see how that goes, right? <laughs> By the way, when we had our five goals, it didn't used to be serve selflessly. It used to be serve where you're gifted. And I demanded that they changed it. You know why? because even that became a smokescreen. I can't tell you how many conversations I had with people that were professionals. You know, I'm a big shot at work and there's just really no place for me to serve at church where my gifts are appreciated, right? And so I'm just not gonna do anything. You know what that is? That's fog, fog. But I'm gifted to be a teacher and nobody lets me teach so I'm not doing anything. Or I'm gifted to sing but they won't let me sing so I'm not going to do anything. Or I'm gifted to play an instrument, they won't let me play an instrument so I'm not going to do anything. Can I remind you, John chapter 13, did I mention Jesus washed the disciples' feet? 
I am pretty sure that was not in his area of giftedness. I'm sure, pretty sure that if Jesus took a spiritual gifts test, it would probably say teacher, healer, miracle worker. I doubt foot washer showed up in the top 30, right? But he got a base in the water. He got it on his hands and knees, and he washed their feet, and it's because he saw a need and he met it. Something needed to be done, and he did it. And then he sat back down at the table and said, hey, guys, forget all the discussion. You don't need to debate it. Don't even try to fog it, fog it up. Just do it. Now, let me just say something. A lot of you are here this weekend because somebody served you. Somebody put your needs above their needs. I can't tell you, I meet some every, every week who said, you know what, when I came to this place, as I was pulling in, I thought, I'll go today, but I'm never coming back again. It's too overwhelming. Looks like six flags over Jesus. I'm not doing it anymore, right? But this is the story. When I pulled in, there was this guy dressed in this funky orange clothes. And he made sure that I had a parking spot. See, this is somebody who got up and made a decision at some point in the past. I'm not just going to go to church and get out as quick as I can and get, and get home. I'm going to actually stay in extra service so I can go to church one service. And then I'm going to stay and serve in the parking lot. I'm going to put the needs of other people ahead of my own needs. And then as you got closer to the building, there was somebody that was smiling who greeted you and said, it is so good to have you here today. And maybe they showed you around. And maybe, maybe they became your friend and they answered all your questions. It's because, see, they decided they weren't going to just come to one service and get out as quickly as possible. I got my church in this week. They were going to stick around and they were going to invest in other people's lives. They were going to put their needs above their own needs. And then maybe they took you back to Kid City where it was filled with people who decided not just to come to one service, but to stick around and love on your children and build into your children. And now you take your kids home and they love Jesus. They have a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to threaten them or bribe them or beg them to go to church. Now they can't wait to go to church, but it was because somebody put their needs and your kids' needs above their own needs. Or maybe it was as simple as a cup of coffee that gave you a little bit of security blanket when you came in, like, oh, this is good. I can do it now, man, you know? And it's because some people decided, let's, let's don't just go and get out as quick as we can. Why don't we stick around and make a difference in other people's lives? My point is this. Somebody was willing to put your needs above their needs, and they served you. And because of that, see, you've been here, and your life has been changed. Your kid's life has been changed. Your family's life has been changed. Do you know why? They understood the principle. When you see a need, meet it. When something needs to be done, just do it. That's why Jesus said to you, you just don't have to talk about it. You don't have to debate it. It doesn't matter how, how brilliant you are. You just, you just do it. And I'm just telling you, when you live that way, when you begin to serve people that way, God is going to use you. He is going to use you to bring about extraordinary change in your home, in this church, in our cities, in this nation, maybe even the world. And he says, on top of that, I'll bless you. It's like the great gamble. I'll bless you. You'll never know it till you try it. You'll never know what God is going to do in your life. It's like in that video, people say, I can't imagine not serving. I saw Norm up there. He was the guy with the goldfish, made the goldfish comment. He showed up the second week of Hope Community Church, and he's been serving every weekend for 20 years. I think of my sister and brother-in-law who've been serving every weekend for 20 years. They don't even take time off. I think a Tim Fairchild sitting right down who flies around the country with Goodnight, that sass guy who ought to just give us a bunch of money, but I haven't got him to yet. But anyway, not Tim, Goodnight. But anyway, uh, you know, and he's here at this service. You know what? He'll go be a small group. How old are those boys, Tim? Four and five-year-old five boys afterwards. That's what I'm talking about. I think a Christy who was singing on the worship team, you know what she's not singing? She's on the security team, and she's packing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just amazing to me. God will bless you. 
Don't allow irrelevant questions and discussions to cause you to lose sight of what you know you're supposed to do. And let me just say a couple things, and I'm late already, but that's okay. Some of you used to serve, but you left the game. You went to the sidelines. If you just re-engaged, our serving problems would be over around here. You got a little slack, and for a year, some of a year or two, I've been, I'm praying about it, I'm thinking about it, you know, I'm deciding where do I want to serve, you know, and yeah. Just call it what it is, you're fogging it up. You know what to do, the Bible's very clear on it, there's clarity, do it. Get back in the game. Get back in the game and make a difference. You could very easily take care of it. Some of you, you've never served here, maybe you're new, you don't know how. Let me just encourage you, allow God to, to put yourself in a position where God can allow you to make a difference in someone's life and impact his kingdom. Now, if you've been around, around a while, you know what to do. You know exactly who to go talk to. You know, oh, I used to serve in Kid City. I know who I need to talk to. I used to serve in the coffee shop, or I used to serve in video control, or I used to serve in security. I know who to go talk to. D- just go do it. Just go do it and get back in the game. If you're new, this is what I want you to do. Take out your phone. You got a smartphone? I won't leave. I got all day. I don't care if the next service, they can stand in the parking lot and wait. Just get out your smartphone. Let's do this real quick. Why are you looking at me? Get out your smartphone. You think I'm kidding? I got nowhere to go. There's no games on today that really appeal to me whatsoever. So just get out your smartphone if you don't, sir. Let me show you how simple this is. Just go to the Get Hope app. Go to the Get Hope app. Over 12,000 downloads. If you don't have it, download. This is what you do. Once you go to the Get Hope app, I don't see a lot of you doing it. But see, this is why I'm going to retire. And no, nothing I say matters, okay? You just push the serve button. And when you push the serve button, you're going to get asked a few questions. You're going to answer those questions, and you're going to send them back to us. In just a couple of days, you're going to get an email based on how you answered those questions that are going to give you several options of where you probably would enjoy serving. And once you do that, you just resubmit it and just check one and say, I will try it. And within three days, a staff person's going to contact you. It's that simple. If you don't like technology, that's, you know, if you're like me, you can go to the, the next steps counter. You can see anybody serving in the parking lot at the front door in Kid City in the coffee shop in the video room, a security guard. Say, how do I get involved? They will walk you through it, but they will get you involved. But just do it. Just do it. Let me just close by saying For the things that God wants us to do, there's incredible clarity in the Bible. God's not interested in playing some cosmic game of hide-and-seek with us, like, ooh, where am I? What do I want you to do? See, he's not into that. He makes it very, very clear. I mean, let's be honest. Did you really need a message on living obediently? Did you really need a message as a Christian on serving? Do you really need another message on connecting intentionally or sharing the story how God changed your life? giving gen- Do you really need that? I mean, that is so clear. The issue isn't on me teaching. This is what I've decided. It doesn't matter what I say. Some of you just aren't going to do it because you just don't want to be obedient because you just aren't in a point in life where you actually want to put the needs of other people above your own needs. So you'll just keep on fogging it up and say, yeah, but you don't understand my situation. Yeah, you can say whatever you want to. It's a matter of choosing not to be obedient. So I have all the next three messages planned out. I'm going to throw them aside. And it bums me a little bit because they're already done. (laughs) But I got to tell you, God has just been working on my heart for something that I got to talk to you about. And we just got to address as a congregation. So I want you to continue to do your book because we always need a refresher course in our five goals. 
Talk about in your small groups. Do it personally. But over the next three weeks, I'm going to go in a little bit different direction. You know, it says in Proverbs 16 that man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. So I'm just going to talk to you about what I feel like I need to talk to you about. And some of you aren't going to like it. And some of you will stop coming and you'll go to another church where they don't expect anything from you. But I'm going to talk about it because this is what I believe with all my heart. I believe God's getting ready to do something around here of Old Testament proportions. I really do. And I don't think it's because of anything we do. I think it's because in the book of Acts, it says God blessed the church and they grew as God saw fit. And sometimes God just says, I'm going to bless you in spite of yourself. And I think God is just going to bless us. I think he's going to open up the doors and I want to be a part of it. And I so want you to be a part of it too. So I'm going I'm to talk about something next week. And I'm going to be talking about the importance of connecting and communion a little bit, but that's kind of an afterthought now. And uh, I think what we do next week, for some of you, is going to blow your mind. But it's based on this. In Acts chapter 2, when that church was working together and serving each other and, 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 and putting their possessions together and making sure everybody's needs were met and they were studying God's word together and praying for each other and all those things, the verse that grabbed my attention, it says, and the community was in awe. Not the church community. The community outside the church was looking at the church and saying, wow, look at how they take care of one another. Look at how they love one another. Look at how committed they are. It doesn't mean they all believed, but they were in awe. So next week we're going to talk about how do we have that kind of impact in our community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing. I don't know what else to say. I could beg plead, get on my knees, and it just, I don't know. So you work in people's hearts. You work in their hearts. And Father, I pray for those who are like, yeah, that didn't touch me at all. That whole serving thing, that's just not for me. God, just make them miserable. Just make them miserable. Don't let them sleep. Don't let them eat. Just make them miserable until they decide just that they want to be obedient. And then once they're obedient, they'll discover like, oh, yeah, thank you, God. I had no idea what I was missing. So that's my prayer today. First time in 33 years, God, just make them miserable <laughs> until they become obedient to you. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.